Thanks again for uh, coming. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at Psalm 51. We began um, a, just a, a, a study last week in, uh, in this journey during the spiritual season of, of Lent. And what we looked at last week was um, just kind of laying a foundation for the issues, matters of the heart as it relates to what God is calling us as a people to do and what he's calling us to be, who he's calling us to be as we go through Lent. And again, I, um, through Second Chronicles 7.14, emphasized how it has to begin with us, that the things that we long for, the revival that we long to see in our churches, in our world, and it has to begin with us at, at, at a personal level uh, with the people of God and, and how that foundation is laid um, oftentimes through the practices and the habits of Lent and how God is a whole lot more concerned about the heart than he is about the art. Right, a whole lot more concerned about um, wanting our lives and our surrender and our obedient, uh, glad surrender to him more than he is about us fasting coffee or, or TV or, or whatever it is that we're uh, surrendering for Lent. Today, I, I want to get into some of the practices, into some of the practices that traditionally throughout the church uh, believers have engaged in that help them to really understand um, what Lent's purpose is so that by the time we get to Good Friday, this is my hope, is, is as we engage in these practices, these disciplines of grace, that by the time Good Friday comes around, our hearts will be filled with such a sense of, of broken surrender to the cross. And then come Easter Sunday, that our hearts would just be soaring in anticipation and glad joy and the freedom that comes because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's my hope, and I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that as we go this, on this journey together, that if we engage in this, then that's what the result would be for our lives uh, as individuals as well as a congregation. But uh, today I want to talk about this unexpected grace that comes uh, through confession. Okay. Uh, Psalm 51 is, gonna, uh, is where we're going to look at, but again, I want to set the table here. The story actually begins in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, uh, some of you may know the story of King David. Others of you may not. Uh, but King David was the great king of Israel. They called him a man after God's own heart. He was the, the second king, and he was the one that all other kings would look back at and say, this is the glory days of Israel, right? When, when King David was on the throne, he was leading the people. Um, that's where they hit their, their, their pinnacle, their apex um, as a nation. This is where they were at their finest, uh, at their finest hour. And so King David is king at the time. And you can go back and, and read the account in, in 2 Samuel 11, but it's a time when kings are out at war. Right? Israel was at war, uh, warring nations. And what kings would do, think King Arthur, King Leonidas, um, King Kong, these guys are all leaders in, of their people when it goes, comes to battle. So they're supposed to be out fighting. But here it says in 2 Samuel 11, it says, instead of being at war, David is more like a college student than he is like a king. Waking up late in the afternoon, in the evening, he's sleeping in. Maybe he's been playing video games or whatever he's been doing. But he wakes up late and he gets up and he goes out on, outside, of, outside of his house and he just starts stretching outside of his palace. And then he looks and he sees across his neighbor's way, he sees one of his neighbors named Bathsheba and she's taking a bath. And he's filled with lust and filled with all kinds of sensual delight as he looks at the beauty of this woman. Her husband, Uriah, has gone off to fight in the battle, and so she's all alone. And so what does he do as a king? Right? He's got all the power in the world. He fetches her and says, hey, bring her over. And so he effectively has a one-night stand with her, sends her back to her house. In time, she comes to him and she says, you know what, I'm pregnant. 
Right? So they go on the Maury Povich show and they find out that it's his DNA. He's the father. And he's like, oh my goodness, right? It's mine. And so here begins this elaborate scheme to try and cover up everything that has just happened. And he, he, he tries to bring her husband Uriah home so that he could sleep with his wife. And he, being a noble man, says, how could I do that? How could I engage in this kind of pleasure when my fellow people are out on the battlefield giving their lives for the sake of the nation that God loves? And so David says, well, if that doesn't work, I'm going to get him drunk and, and then make him, make him get with his wife and he get, gets him drunk. And, and yet he still doesn't do that because of his honor, because of his, the, the noble character of his heart. And so it just did this massive cover up and, and deceit after deceit and lie upon lie being spun. And this web of lies is, is being. And finally, David says, OK, if nothing else is working, I'm going to have him killed off. And so he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle where the fighting is the fiercest. And Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, gets killed. And so finally, David feels like, all right, my hands are clean. I can move on with this. And he moves on with his life. And for about a year, he's living, you know, this kind of thinking, you know what? What happens in Jerusalem stays in Jerusalem. Nobody saw it. Nobody knows. The only person that, that, that needs to know has been killed off. And so we're good to go. Here we go. And so he's living life. And about a year after, a prophet named Nathan comes sent by God. And he speaks into David's heart and he says, you know, what you have done is known by God and you need to come clean with it. And it's in the, in the immediate aftermath of these events that David writes Psalm 51 as his way of describing his situation, describing his heart and talking about what it is that he felt. And as we look into this, this is David at his finest hour. At his finest hour, as we look into Psalm 51, we see the heart of confession. And again, some important things that we can look at as we engage our hearts, as we go through this Lenten journey to see how is it that I can prepare my heart for Lent, through Lent, uh, for the Holy Week to come. This is Psalm 51. It says, the director of music, Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This is from the... Quill of David, and says God's word. We're going to just read to verse 12 today. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed Rejoice, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And this is God's word. Again, this is... David, a man after God's own heart, the great king of Israel, and yet he was an adulterer, he was a cheat, he was a liar, 
that he was a murderer. And again, we see him here. This is the pinnacle of him pursuing the heart of God because he's not one who did not know failure. And I think that's comforting. That's important for us because being a man after or a woman after God's own heart does not mean that we have to be completely free of sin because we're not and he wasn't. But what is it about this confession that is so powerful that drives the heart of David to this place? And what is it that, what is it that the authors of Scripture, why is it that they left this, recorded this for us to see? Uh, again, I was going to go through the whole chapter, but there's so much, right, so much in, in Psalm 51 to, to get through that um, I had to kind of break it up into two parts. So today, the first part, and then tomorrow, the, the second part. But why do we need to confess? Now, that's, the, that's, the, that's what I basically want to talk about today is why do we need to confess? Because a lot of times we have this idea of confession, that it's a bad thing, it's a, it's a, it's a thing I don't want to engage in. But here we find one of the most unexpected graces of God is as we engage in this discipline of confession. Okay, why do we need to do it? The first thing that we see is unconfessed sin will slowly rob us of life. Okay, understand that unconfessed sin will slowly rob us of life. Okay, so maybe immediately in your mind, um, maybe there's a sin that comes to your mind. It's something that you've engaged in that maybe you're afraid to, to come to God with, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, or maybe you realize that, yeah, you know what? There, for some reason in my heart, in my life, I feel like I'm slowly dying. I'm dying a slow and painful death in my spiritual life. And you're trying to figure out why it is. I'm not saying that this is why 100%, but here's the reality. Is that unconfessed sin will slowly rob you and me of life. We see this in David. Again, this is a year after he's committed this sin. He feels like he's in the clear, that everything is cool. Everything is done. Nobody knows, right? Bathsheba knows. I know. My servants know. But no, nobody cares about that because this is what kings do, isn't it? This is what kings do. When there's power, I can do whatever I want, right? This is what David's thinking. It's all good in the hood. But then the prophet Nathan comes to him and he just begins to convict him. He right? just begins to convict him of these sins. I want you to feel the weight of this here. Because in verses 1 and 2, the way that he explains it, the way that he talks about it, he uses different words to talk about the gravity of what he's feeling. Okay, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Then he says, um, blot, I'm sorry, uh, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Okay, three things that we see here. The first thing when he says, have mercy on me. Okay, this is courtroom terminology. David is saying, I've committed a crime. And this is weighing on my heart. He's just, this, is, this is what sin is. It's a crime. And the same way that we ought to feel when we're running away from the law after we've broken, after we've committed a crime, is what David is seeing. This is, this is the weight of it here. I, I remember a time, I, I've shared this on several occasions, when I was a middle school student. And I was at Kmart with my mom, and I decided to, I wanted to have some baseball cards. And I knew my mom wasn't going to buy them for me. And so 
I, I saw some other kids in front of me, and they were just kind of opening up different packs and looking at who the, the players were and, and things. So I said, well, if they're doing it, they're older than me, then I'm going to do it also. So I, I opened up these packs also. You know, you're not supposed to do this, right? I opened up these packs, and I started looking at them, and I was like, oh, you know, these are some people that are really good. And so I started thinking, and, and, and you know how things begin to spiral from just like opening them up and, and just being curious to saying, you know what, I want that. Right, curiosity turns to covetousness, and, and, and I begin to look, and I said, wow, you know, and I, I set aside a stack, uh, a manageable stack that I could fit in my pocket of people that I thought was pretty good, that I, maybe, maybe if the opportunity presented itself, I would, I would steal them. Right? I just kind of leaving myself an out in case mom comes, and then I could, I could leave. So I set aside a stack of cards that, you know, pretty, you know, this would fit in my pocket, about 300 of them, and then when no one was looking, about 30 of them, when no one was looking, I took as many as I could and I put them into my pockets and I looked around and nobody was there. I'm like, yeah. Okay, so there's a sense, this rush of exhilaration that nobody saw me, right? Nobody caught me. And so I went, I found my mom and I said, mom, I'm going to go sit in the car. We had a Ford Aerostar minivan at the time. So I'm going to go wait in the car because I don't like Kmart. Any. It's kind of boring. You go do your shopping. So I walked out and every step closer to the door was a step closer to freedom. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I got out. It was dark outside. I got in, opened the, gar- uh, the, 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 the door to the minivan. I sat in and I closed the door and I had this huge sense of relief. So many emotions just flooding through my heart at this time. I want is like the, the, the sheer joy of like, you know, when you do like an Ocean's Eleven kind of takeover and, and you get away. Right, just this excitement. There's that excitement in me. There's the excitement of, of, of looking at my loot, right? And just looking at all these cards that I had of Cal Ripken and all of these superstars. And this this beautiful thing. And as I was, I was looking as putting, uh, taking these cards out of my pocket, I heard this knock on the window. It's like, oh, stinkers. And there's a guy with a mustache. I still remember, a little pudgy guy with a mustache. He's like, open the door, Kmart security. I was like, oh, my goodness. And then all of a sudden, it's this like sinking feeling where all of this, this like elation just, just falls to the ground. And my heart was on the ground. I was like, oh, my goodness. And as, this is like the longest walk from the minivan back into the Kmart store. And he's like, he had a video and he's showing me all of these things. And it's me, like it's clearly me, like with my bowl haircut and I'm stealing these cards. And it's that feeling when you know you've been busted. And just, just carrying the weight of this. And David's like this. Imagine now. It's not just baseball cards that you've stolen, but you've stolen a human being. Okay, not just any human being, but you've stolen a human being from the clutches of her husband. Not only have you stolen her, but you've committed adultery with her. That you've committed a sinful act with her. Not only that, it's murder premeditated to the highest order. And this is the weight of sin that David is feeling on his heart. It's a crime. It is criminal against God. And that's the first thing. But he goes on and he says, blot out my transgressions. This terminology of blotting is what's used in, in, in accounting senses when you've got this amazing debt. Hey, so say you've got a debt that you owe somebody. Maybe, um, I don't know, you, you stole something you're in, in high school or you stole somebody's car and you, you trashed it and you owe like 15000 money that you, you, there's no way you could pay. Or you're an, you're an adult and, I don't know, $500 million that you owe to somebody. 
And just a constant gnawing sense that I've got this debt that I can't pay. And what do you do with that? What do you do with that when you know it is, there, there's just no way that you can, you can get rid of this? It's a constant sense of avoiding that person. Like I can't be in the present. If, if I see them, then I know that I owe them. And so here's David. He's running away from God because he knows he owes this debt that, there's, he, that he can't pay. Then he says in verse 2, he says, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me. It's the image of being stained. Okay, these first two things, the issue is I've done something wrong. The third issue of being stained is I am something wrong. Do you see the difference here? The difference between guilt and shame. Like I've done something wrong. Now with this leprous stains all over him, the idea is, is there's this weight upon him because not only is, am I guilty, but I am completely jacked up and broken because of what I've done. You ever feel like that? I'm sure you do. I'm sure you felt that way. I'm sure you felt that way. There's, there's a difference, because, especially if you're, you come from an Asian background, we constantly feel this sense of shame. Not that I did something wrong, but I am something wrong. Isn't that what, isn't that what parents tell you? You didn't, get, you didn't get an A on your exam, so it's not just you failed your test. They say you are a failure or you feel like a failure. Not just you messed up, but you are messed up. And especially in the realm of sexual sin, isn't that what we feel? Not just, oh, I did something wrong, but we begin to crucify ourselves and to beat ourselves up and say, I am something wrong. There's something wrong with me. It's, it just moves beyond the realm of guilt into shame, and we can't stand to be around people. This is what David is saying when he says, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. This is what he's feeling. And the weight of these unconfessed sins is just crushing him. And he's saying the same thing is true in your life and in mine. That if there is unconfessed sin, it is going to slowly rob us of life. And maybe that's where some of us are this morning. You've got these unconfessed sins in your heart. And you can't sing songs of gladness to God. You can't tell other people freely about Jesus. You can't, it hurts to smile because you have to force yourself to do it. It says in in verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Isn't that the worst feeling? Like wherever you go, wherever you go, you close your eyes and you see this sin. Wherever you're going, something reminds you of that sin. Whoever you look at reminds you of that sin that you committed. Whatever you're, you know, you're watching TV and something spurs something, it's always before you. You you read Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart before? This great short story about this guy who, (laughs) it's odd, but he kills this old man that he lives with. The reason he kills him is because he doesn't like his eye, (laughs) right? His eye looks funny, and so he kills him. And so he kills this man in in the middle of the night, Old man screams, neighbor hears, neighbor calls the police, police come. Before the police comes, this guy, the narrator, takes this old man that he's killed, he dismembers him, and he puts them under the floorboard. And so the cops come, and this guy is cool as a cucumber, sets up chairs, says, sit down, have a seat. I don't know what you're talking about, I don't know, didn't hear anything, oh, that that was me screaming or whatever. And in time... He begins to hear this faint noise. 
It's not like this, this beating noise. Doom, 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 doom. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And he's just starting to sweat and he begins to, to get nervous because he's pretty sure that it's the heartbeat of this man below. And as he's trying to, t- trying to keep cool, just the cops are, are there. The, he begins to think, well, if this is so loud, then the cops have to know. The cops have to hear it as well. And so he just blurts out. He confesses, I did it. I killed him. He's under there. Dig it up. Find him. Only to realize that it wasn't the heartbeat of the man that he had killed. It was his own guilty conscience beating within his own heart. He felt like that. The sense of of guilt. The sense of shame. Over sin that is unconfessed. Over sins that you are afraid or ashamed to bring before God. You feel like it's too big for God to, to forgive that. And we're living in the crippling, life-draining weight of this sin. He says, it's ever before me. Like the first thing you think of when you wake up is that sin. The last thing that you think about when you go to sleep, you can't sleep at night because it's all you're thinking about. Is these things, these skeletons in your closet. Now, this is what David's feeling. Thought maybe time, if I run away fast enough and furious enough, then I can get away from these things. But he's saying it's not true. This is, this is, this is me. This is what I'm feeling. And if you, look at the, if you look at what he says in the rest of these verses, verse, starting in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. The bones you've crushed, rejoice, hide your face, blot your, out my iniquity, create in me a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Restore joy. Give me a willing spirit. All of these things that he's longing for are things that he doesn't have. Joy and gladness, is that something that's lacking in your experience of God? The bones you've crushed. I feel this in the deepest part of who I am. That's what he's saying. In the deepest parts of of who I am, I feel feel the weight of this. Pure heart, a steadfast spirit. Do not cast me from your presence. You feel like the presence of God is so far from you. Feel like Holy Spirit has been withdrawn from you. Feel like there's no joy of salvation, that joy that you once experienced in following after Christ, feel like that's not there anymore. David's saying this is the fruit of unconfessed sin in our lives. And this is what happens. We don't confess. Here's what he's saying. Ultimately, confession then, my brothers and sisters, get this, confession is primarily for us. God knows your sin and mine. And if you're a child of God at the cross, he's already forgiven our sins. Right? Nothing that we say or do can add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross. You stand forgiven. If you are a blood-bought child of God by faith in Christ, Right? That's the reality. Confession is not for God. It's for you and it's for me. 
so that we would avoid this experience of dying a slow and agonizing death where little bits and pieces of our heart are being ripped away from us day by day. Confession isn't, it's not, God doesn't need us to do that. This is a discipline that we need whereby which we can appropriate the grace of God into our lives. You and I need this. And if we think we're running away from God by our lack of confession, we're not hurting, we're hurting ourselves more than we're hurting anybody else. Yeah, that's the first thing that uh, David and through David, God wants us to understand. The second thing, here's the second thing. Life-giving confession begins with seeing sin for what it truly is, right? Seeing sin as it truly is. At a certain point, David says, all right, you know what? I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. Guy, I, I, I'm fed up with, with being in this place where I'm, I'm, I'm with the people of God and everyone else is singing songs, but I'm not feeling that. Just feels like, feels like my prayers are not going above my head. You ever feel like this? Feel like you're praying and your prayers are just, boom, bouncing off the ceiling, just, just coming right back at you. Feel like no prayers are being answered. Like there's no, there's no sense of freedom, no sense of liberation. Just constantly feel darkness and gloom all around. Feeling like the relationships that I have, I feel like I have to put up a wall all the time. And finally, David gets to a point where he says, you know what, I can't, I can't live like, I don't want to live like this anymore. He says, enough is enough. And he just begins to call sin, sin. Starting again in verse 1. There are three words that he uses at the end of verse 1 and then into verse 2. It says, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. A lot of times we, we kind of use these three words, transgressions, iniquity, and sin. We use these interchangeably, but that's not what David's doing here. He's not trying to be a poet. He's speaking of three very specific and different categories of wrongdoing here. Iniquity, that's what iniquity means, is wrongdoing. But transgression means it is utter and sheer rebellion against God. This is willful rebellion against the character and the person of who God is. And then sin is to miss the mark, is to deviate from the path that God has. Here's Here's what David's saying. Ultimately, he's doing a categorical inventory of his sin. Saying, God, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. Every sin that I've committed, I want to flip that over before you because I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live in sin. I don't want to live with this sense of, 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 of just this, this ickiness and this yucky feeling of weight and of guilt on my, on my shoulders all the time. I don't want to live like this anymore. And so he says, I'm going to do a categorical confession of every one of my sins here. Have you ever done this before? Just ever have these, these times where all you do in your hour or two hours of prayer is just sit and, and just confess sin. Man, the, the times that I've done this have been the most liberating and spiritually enlightening times. Just experiencing and drinking in the wonder of grace. You ever, you ever done this before? Maybe taking, uh, going through the Ten Commandments and just walking through you shall have no other gods before me. God, what other idols do I have? What gods do I, who, who do I spend more time with? What do I spend more time doing than you? What do I long for more than you? What do I desire? What do I dream of more than I desire you? And just laying these things down before the Lord. And just go through each of them. No graven image. 
Don't take the name of the Lord God in vain. Are there times where we say I'm a Christian just so that we can get something out of it rather than out of sheer love and devotion to God? Right? Honor the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Right? Don't kill. Okay, Jesus ups the ante. You do remember. He says you, you, you get angry at somebody. Right? You've committed murder in your heart. Right? Things like this. Don't commit adultery. So if you look lustfully at somebody, right? you look lustfully at somebody, you've committed adultery in your heart already. See, here's what, here's what David's not doing that we do a lot. David's not making excuses for his behavior. I think we're really good at excusing our sin and finding a way out to say it's not so bad. We say things like, I was tired. I didn't have my coffee this morning. I had a long night yesterday. It was her fault. It was his fault. It's my, my dad's fault that I'm like this. But come on, I'm a, I'm a college student. It's not really that bad. It's my stress relief. I think all these things may be valid and may be legitimate, but when we make excuses, it's no wonder that the wonder of the gospel isn't wonderful to some of us. Because we're always excusing our sin. Everyone else is doing it. Everyone else spends 15 hours a day on video games or listening to K-pop or what, I, you know, whatever it is that, that we're, we're, we're doing with all of our time. We make excuses and then we come and sing songs and, and we wonder why it doesn't move our hearts. Because we're so good at making excuses and Jesus didn't die for an excuse. He died for sin. When we make excuses, we're saying, I'm not that bad. And when we're not that bad, we don't need a savior, quite frankly. Isn't that right? If I'm only like that bad, then I, don't, I only need that, bad, that big of a savior. And we're so good at making, this is, I mean, that's what our culture does. I, I understand, right? It's not homosexuality. It's not a sin. It's an alternative lifestyle, right? That's not what, what would God say about these things? I'm not lazy. It's the college lifestyle. I don't think that's what God would say. See, we're really good at making excuses. Yeah, I don't. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm underage, and it's illegal to drink, but it's okay because that's just the culture of the people that I hang out with. And it's no wonder that we don't experience the fullness of the presence of God in our lives, because when we have this kind of unconfessed sin in our lives and we don't see it for what it is, it keeps us from experiencing the beauty and the wonder. Of God's grace. Man, I hope that as we go through Lent, some of us are going to have to make some hard choices. Right? We've made some hard choices as we began Lent, but, but let's press in deeper a little bit. Right, what do we need to give up? Really, what do we need to give up? Right, some of us are, are, are giving up things that are difficult. Some of us are giving up things that are, are not so difficult. But, but what would it look like for us to really begin to call sin, sin, and see it the way God sees it? What would that look like in your life and in mine? I know there's a lot of stuff I'd need to change in my life. I wonder how much stuff there'd be in your life.
that needs to change. And there's something beautiful about, about realizing the wonder of God's grace, right? Something amazing about encountering God in, in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, and, and, and just realizing that he, see, he knows me and he sees and he cuts through all of that stuff. To, to, to see ourselves for who we are is one of the give, biggest gifts that God could ever give to us. A few, but a couple years ago, I, I had a physical, and my, my doctor told me that my cholesterol was too high. And he specifically told me what I need to do. He said, stress less, exercise more, eat healthier. No shrimp, no, sea, no uh, fried foods, no fatty foods. And for about a meal, I did that. And then I started going back to however I wanted to live. Last week, I had another physical. And my doctor said, your cholesterol has jumped 30 points in the bad way. It's your heart. You got heart issues. You need to go see a, you need to go see a cardiologist. It says, same thing. You need to stay away from fried foods, from fatty stuff. You need to eat healthier, stress less, exercise more. But at this point in time, I have a choice. I can make excuses. I could say, you know what? My dad's got high cholesterol. I just love eating marbled fat. Tastes good. And seafood, that is God's gift to us. <laughs> or I could see it for what it is. This is a gift of God telling me I need to change the way that I live. I did for five days, for three days, and it's been the hardest week of my life. But there's so much more at stake, isn't there? How about in our spiritual lives? As God is laying a finger on these areas of our lives, same thing that he's been saying to us two years ago. And we have a choice to make. And what are we going to do? He sees it for what it is. Look at what he says in, in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. Here's the beauty of it. He realizes, of course, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his nation. But he's saying, God, it's against you only that I sinned. Here's what he's saying. Even if nobody else knows, God, you know. And ultimately, every sin is against you. He didn't confess because he was afraid people were going to find out. He didn't confess because he was embarrassed that his husband, her, his wife was going to know her husband. He said, God, I'm confessing these things because I am broken before you. Even if I had sinned against a thousand people, that is nothing compared to the fact that I sinned against the almighty God who's the lover of my soul, who created me and has covenanted faithfulness to his people. Say, that's the one against whom I've sinned. And he's saying every single one of us has a sickness. Verse five and six, from the beginning, we are sinful. At birth. What he's saying is, look, I had this problem before I was born. I've got this problem now, and unless you help me, God, I'm not going to be able to overcome it. I think sometimes we have this idea that I've got these, these sins, I've got these issues, I've got these struggles, and I'm going to make myself right, and then I'm going to come, come back to God. And, 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 and God's word is saying, you can't. You had this sin issue before, you've got it now, and unless you come to me, you're not going to be able to overcome it. That's how severe this illness is. And so David finally 
comes clean before the Lord. This amazing, amazing plea, create in me a clean, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This language of creation here is only used in the Old Testament. It's never used of any human being. It's the same terminology of Genesis 1. When he says, create in me a clean heart, he's saying, God, would you do in me what only you can do? I can't purify myself. I can't fix myself. I can't make myself right. The only thing, the only thing that can make my heart right and clean and pure is if you do this by a supernatural act of grace. And so here I am. I'm taking my mask off. I come naked. I am. Here I am, God, doing me what only you can because I can't fix it. I can't fix it. The stain is too deep. The debt is too great. The crime is too big for me to do anything to rectify. Remember, the story of the Phantom of the Opera. This cat named Eric, he's just jacked up. His face is broke, messed up, so bad that he's got to wear a mask. So he's the Phantom of the Opera. I think it's the Paris Opera House or wherever it is. And he lives in the basement, kind of created this own place for him to live in. And there comes this girl, beautiful girl named Christine. And she's, you know, he becomes his, his student. He teaches her and he falls in love with her. And it, it's, it's a crazy tale of a story throughout, the, you know, throughout the, the book, throughout the play. But he falls in love, and there's one point towards the end of, end of the story where he's got her, right? He's got her, and he's got her in, in, his, in his lair, whatever it is. And he's just really deeply in love with her. And so this one moment, he wants to, he wants to kiss her. And so he kind of lifts up. His mask. They said his mask, underneath the mask, it looked like rotting corpse. Right? You ever seen someone that looked like rotting corpse? Hopefully not. Hopefully they wear a mask, but that's what he wore. So he lifts up his mask, he kisses her. I think he kissed her on the forehead. And then he realizes that she doesn't fight back. And so he, in this moment, he like is crying and he rips off his mask and reveals his grotesque this jacked up face and with tears and he kisses her and then she starts crying also. Not because he's so hideous, but moved by this compassion and this love for this man. And the, the, the most unexpected response that he could ever imagine she kisses him back, and then he just loses it from that point. He says, go, go, you know, you need to be with the person that you love. But in that moment, when he takes off his mask and he reveals himself in all of his jacked up unglory, the one response that he least expects is the one response that meets him, a response of maddening compassion for his brokenness. In verse 1, David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. This word compassion, the appeal, the basis of David's appeal, is the compassionate 
mercy of God. Right, this word, when he talks about compassion, is a word that means when you cry, God cries along with you. When you cry over your sin, when you cry over your brokenness, when you beat yourself up over all of the mistakes that have been made, and you bring this before the Lord God, the most unexpected response greets you. It is this unfailing love and this compassion that caused God to send his only begotten son to live amongst the people who were constantly wearing masks to cover up their grotesqueness. And yet it was when he asked and invited people to peel off the mask that adulterers came running to him, that prostitutes came running to him, that people who had killed came running to him, that thieves came running to him. It's today when we peel off our masks that people who've, who've committed adultery, people who ha- who've had abortions, people who have, have killed, people who have done all kinds of wrong, when we peel off our mask and say, God, in your great compassion, have mercy on me. It's only when we take off the mask and we fear the worst when the most unexpected response meets us in that place of genuine brokenness that God weeps with us and he cries with us and he holds us in our brokenness where we feel like we're so utterly unhuggable, unkissable, he does the unthinkable. And he holds us, and he kisses us, and he frees us from the bondage and the baggage to our past. No amount of drug addiction, no amount of alcohol abuse, no amount of running could ever, ever, ever outrun the grip and the length of God's grace. And he calls to us. He says, you are free, child. You are free to run. You are free to live. Don't live in condemnation anymore. Don't live weighed under the baggage of your sin anymore. That has been set free. It's been cut loose. Go and live. Go in the glorious freedom. You're not who you thought you were. You're not who you used to be. Go and it begins. It begins by standing and peeling off our mask. And coming clean before the Lord God. And he says, here you are. Receive this forgiveness. Drink deeply of it over and over and over and over again. Constantly do this. Be amazed by the wonder of grace. And then go and run in that freedom. Let's pray. As this journey begins now, the moment we hear God's word is a moment of response and obedience. God never called his people, preach the word, and then say, think about it. He says, now, today, if you hear the voice of God, let's move. Don't worry right now about anything else. But let's ask the Lord God, just pray this simple prayer. God, search my heart. Search my heart right now and and show me the unconfessed sin in my life. Show me the ways in which I've made excuses 
for my sin. God, show me the excuses that I make. And here and now, help me to confess, not because I'm afraid of being caught, but help me to confess because this sin, no matter who is involved, is always against you, the almighty God. So let's take some time in the quiet of our hearts to pray. Let's take some time in the the quiet of our hearts just to pray and just to to spend some moments in confession. Don't worry about people around you. If you're concerned about them, then then just stand and move to a different seat. Move or, or stand in the aisle or stand in the back or stand in the front. Let's not talk to other people. Let's not fidget. Let's not dilly-dally. Let's just, just meet with God here. Just confess whatever it is that the, the, the Lord God is convicting us to confess of right now. Okay, let's spend a couple moments doing that. Just continue to confess before the Lord as those who are able. In a moment, we're going to come to the table, the Lord's Supper. Let's just do a sin inventory right now. And not that we'd be fixated upon sin, but so that on the other side, we would drink of his grace. Others have gone through a practice of calling out, naming the seven deadly sins and and then confessing for ways in which those have been in operation. Pride, greed, lust, envy, anger, sloth, gluttony. Just continue to, to let the Lord shine a flashlight on our hearts. Reveal the idolatry to reveal the sin. We might confess that to the Lord God. And let's confess specific sins specifically. One confession of, God, I'm sorry for lying to my boss because I wanted to preserve my reputation more than I wanted to honor Christ is worth so much more than a hundred simple forgive me for lying. Specifically confess and to repent for the sins of our hearts, sins that we've committed ways we've treated our siblings, ways we've treated our parents, children, attitude towards God in worship, attitude towards his church, attitude towards work, school, complaining, gossip, sins of the mouth, sins of the tongue, sexual sins, whatever it might be. Let's confess that before the Lord continually.
Father in heaven, I pray that the taste of sin would be so bitter because the taste of Jesus is so sweet. Pray that the weight of unconfessed sin would beat in our hearts and would haunt us until we confess it to you. Because confession starts when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain to confess. Lord, we need you. We're desperately in need of you. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves. And unless we see the depth of sin, we will not drink the depths of grace. Help us, O oh God. Convict us and challenge us. And then may we go and live freely as we dance and skip and sing the song of the redeemed. We thank you for your grace in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.